What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? 1-833-288-EWTN. I don't understand why I have to earn salvation. 1-833-288-3986. Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? What's stopping you? This is Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Hey everybody, welcome again to Call to Communion here on EWTN. We are very glad that you're with us today. Maybe you've got a question about the Catholic faith that is unresolved in your brain and you want to get it resolved. Well, we are here for you. Here's our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. We especially want to hear from our non-Catholic brothers and sisters, 833-288-3986. If you're listening to us outside of the U.S. and Canada, please dial the number 1 and then 205-271-2985. And you can always send us an email 24-7. The address for that, ctc at EWTN. Com. Charles Beery is our producer. Matt Kabinsky is our phone screener. Jeff Burson is on social media. If you want to ask a question via YouTube or Facebook, all you have to do is put that question of yours in the comments box. Jeff will see that. He knows what to do. He'll shoot it to us here in the studio, and hopefully we can get your question answered on today's program. Again, the phone number 833 833- 288-EWTN. All right, I'm Tom Price along with Dr. David Anders. Tom, how are you today? Very well. How are you, my friend? I'm doing decent. Thank you so much. Are you staying staying cool? More or less. I'm, you know, taking advantage of air conditioning. Are you hydrating? Constantly. There you go. I think you're ahead of the game. Now, you know, it's very often that we, on this program and others, we will give a little shout out to an affiliate, maybe that's celebrating their eighth anniversary with us or their 20th anniversary. I don't think we've ever mentioned an affiliate celebrating their 700th anniversary, but we do have a 700th anniversary uh, to talk about today. Yeah, that's right. Today is the 700th anniversary of the canonization of St. Thomas Aquinas. Wow. Right, canonized by Pope John XXII in the 14th century. Uh, So that's a great day. And in fact, you know, John XXII was not the greatest of popes. He had kind of went down in infamy in a lot of mm, ways. Yeah. The one redeeming thing he did was canonize St. Thomas Aquinas, who, of course, is the common doctor of the Church, meaning that he is a safe authority on all areas of Catholic theology, uh, regarded as the exemplar Catholic philosopher and someone who had a profound impact on me personally in my conversion to the Catholic faith. Well, there you go. So a uh, happy anniversary. St. Thomas Aquinas. Here's an email to lead us off. This is from Bina. Bina says, I asked an assembly of God pastor why God gave the teaching to Moses that those with leprosy had to be separated from society. He answered, this uh, assembly of God pastor, he answered that it was not God-given law, but man-made. So were not the ritual laws not given by God? Okay, so the answer to this question is a little bit tricky. I don't think it's a clear yes or no, okay. and I'll tell you why. <clears throat> so there's an interesting passage in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 19, where uh, Pharisees come to Jesus and they say, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason? And Jesus says, no, it's not lawful for him to divorce his wife for any reason. In fact, he can't get divorced at all. And the reason they raise the question is there, there is a stipulation in the Mosaic Law that a man can divorce his wife. 
And, uh, and the rabbis in the time of Jesus debated about whether he could divorce her for no cause or for cause. And there were two different camps, the kind of liberals and the conservatives. And the liberals took the position that you can get divorced for any reason you want to. And the conservatives said, no, you got to have cause. But what they all agreed on was the law permitted divorce. So they come to Jesus and says, what's your position on this question? And he says, no divorce at all. And they said, well, then, then why, did, why does the law of Moses permit it? And Jesus says, Moses uh, permitted you to do this because of the hardness of your heart, but it wasn't that way from the beginning. Mm. But God made them male and female and said, the two will become one flesh, and what God has joined together, let man not separate. Now, here's the interesting thing from a hermeneutical point of view, an interpretive point of view. When you look at that passage, go back and read the passage in Deuteronomy Uh that talks about the the laseity of divorce, that permits divorce. There's nothing in there in the original text about this being Moses' decision, Moses' prudential choice as a concession to human weakness. Mm. The text is just, thus saith the Lord. And yet Christ himself seems to interpose the personality of Moses between the command of God on the one hand and what actually comes down in civil legislation. Mm-hmm. That's, this is not some modern liberal scholar. This is Jesus Christ who does that, right? So I think it's reasonable to raise a question about uh, how how directly do we understand all the various civil laws that come down to Israel? Ten Commandments aside, Ten mm. Commandments, Mount Sinai, you know, this is kind of the embodiment of the natural law. This is universally relevant commandments. Uh-huh. Uh, but the rest of the Mosaic corpus, should we really see mm. that in all of its fine details as uh, as inscribed, as it were, by the finger of God on stone. And I think that Jesus's position suggests maybe not, maybe not, that, that we can allow for the fact that there were some cultural conventions mm-hmm. that get worked into uh, Israelite law. Uh, and, of course, the, the whole regime revolves around the question of holiness, not a moral holiness, but a ritual holiness and relationship of the people of God uh, to God, ultimately pointing to the Messiah, but in a way that allows us to uh, relativize some of those, well, more difficult passages of the Mosaic text that seem to lack mm. any kind of moral reason behind them. A little, uh, little on the nuanced side. A little bit nuanced. All right. Bina, thanks so much for your question. Here's a quick one from Oliver. Uh, what does a Hail Mary mean in sports when people say, well, they hope for a Hail Mary pass or something like that? Is it okay to use this phrase, or would that be blasphemy? That, you know, every once in a while I'm like, we've been doing this show for X number of years. <laughs> this is one we've never gotten. This is a question I've never gotten. This um, came up maybe 30 or 40 years ago when it seemed like, you know, there's no way that this team could win unless a miracle happened. And then somebody throws the long bomb, sure, somebody sure, sure, catches sure. it, and all of a sudden the other team wins the game right, in like the last right. two seconds. So that's the meaning of the phrase as right. to the question, is it is it blasphemous to use that phraseology? Well, look, I'm not the judge, right? <laughs> I'm not the judge. God is the judge. Uh, you know, it's almost become an idiom in the English language. It has. You know, and so uh, meaning and use and etymology are not all the same. Well, that's where we're going to leave it then. Oliver, thanks so much for your email. In a moment, we'll go to Dell in Boise. Hey, we've got some lines open for you as well at 833-288-EWTN. If you have a question for Dr. David Anders, 833-288-3986, the Tuesday edition of Call to Communion on EWTN. 
call to communion here on EWTN. If you have a question for Dr. David Andrews, we would love to tackle your question. Uh, All you have to do is call 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Have you ever heard of the phrase redemptive Catholic journalism? You may have never heard of this, but it is a real thing. EWTN News helps advance the gospel and teachings of the church through redemptive Catholic journalism. Get our trusted Catholic news in your email inbox by going to EWTN.com, click on the word subscribe, and then look for EWTN News. Put in your email address, and pretty soon you'll be getting the uh, the inside skinny from all of us at uh, EWTN. If you're ready now, let's go to the phones at 833-288-EWTN. We'll begin with Dell in Boise, Idaho, listening on the great Salt and Light Radio. Hey, Dell, what's on your mind today, sir? Well, I had two questions for Dr. Anderson, uh, not being familiar, but do the Catholics believe that flesh and blood, like the Bible says, cannot enter into heaven? Yeah, and- thanks. Uh, well, go ahead, the second question, sorry. And the other question is, is when Jesus returns to Earth and sets up heaven here on Earth, will we be in earthly bodies or spiritual bodies? I believe spiritual bodies, but I would like to know for sure. Okay. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So the Catholic position in this, of course, we we know very well that St. Paul says flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of heaven. We understand that passage of Scripture. Um, And what what Paul goes on to say is that while there will be a resurrection of the body, the resurrected body will be different in kind from the pre-resurrected body. So there's there's continuity, but there's also discontinuity. Now, as to the nature of the resurrection body, all we can say with certainty is it will be like the body of Christ, the resurrected body of Christ. And what was that like? Pretty different. Pretty <laughs> different kind of body. Um, now, uh, the, the, the the view is that it will have material existence. So there will be extension, weight, uh, you know, sensible contact. I mean, these kinds of things can be predicated of the the resurrected body of Christ, therefore they'll be predicated of our resurrected bodies. But uh, but nevertheless, they will be different. They'll be different in kind from what we have now. How exactly different? Don't know. Okay. Well, there you go, Dell. Hope that is helpful for you. That opens up a line for you right now at 833 288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Call to communion on this Tuesday afternoon here on EWTN. Matthew is listening to us on YouTube this afternoon in the UK. Matthew says, how should we interpret Mark uh, chapter 9 verses 38 through 40? That is, uh, whoever is not against us is for us. In the context of honest Protestant conviction and the lack of desire or impetuous to seek or investigate Christ's church. I think he meant impetus, don't you? Uh, he did. Lack of impetus to seek yes, Christ's church. Yes. So the way the Catholic Church regards our Protestant brothers and sisters is that they are brothers and sisters who share with us elements of truth and sanctification that can be for them a way of salvation. And so uh, to the extent to which they are not against us, uh, they would be with us. That would be the Catholic point of view on okay, Protestants. Now, right. having once been a Protestant myself, I can assure you that there are plenty of Protestants who are actively against the Catholic Church. I, I know I was, yeah. and I, I considered it my moral duty to refute Catholicism and to convert Catholics to Protestantism. So obviously, if you're dealing with that kind of Protestant, I mean, I'm not going to make common cause with them in that endeavor. 
<laughs> All right, that's that's not something that I can get down with. Yeah. Uh, but there are a lot of things that I can get down with him on, and uh, and and it's regarding the lack of impetus or desire. You can't seek what you don't know. You can't. That's true. Right? True. And if your if the, your conception of the Catholic Church is that the Catholic Church is the, the the whore of Babylon and the beast and the Antichrist, what motive do you have to uh, invest yourself in Catholicism except to refute it? That's actually what made me Catholic, actually. Mm. I, I set out to refute Catholicism, so I began to seriously study church history in order to firm up my Protestant apologetic, and in the process, I the, un, the unexpected happened. <laughs> and I get the one, one who wanted to convert Catholics ended up getting converted by the Catholics. As they say, the unintended consequence. Unintended consequences. Absolutely. Hey, Matthew, thanks for listening to us in the UK. Appreciate that. It's called Communion here on EWTN. Our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. If you have a question for Dr. David Anders, perhaps you'd like to explain to us what is stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Again, 833-288-EWTN. Here is Ron now, a first-time caller in Texas, listening on the great Guadalupe Radio. Hey, uh, Ron, what's on your mind today, sir? Hello, and thanks for taking my call. I'm in the car. I hope you can hear me okay. Yes, yes, go uh, right ahead. I'm a convert from about 20 years. My wife and I, she's a cradle Catholic. We've been married 52 years. Wow. And neither one of us understands annulment of a marriage. But the way I was raised in, uh, in a non-Catholic family and my way my wife was raised in a Catholic family is what God has joined together, let no man take part. And I know people who get a divorce and then they want to go to communion with their new husband or wife, and so they get an annulment. And I just don't understand that. Yeah, I think I can help you. <clears throat> I really appreciate the question. So the Catholic Church agrees with you. What God has joined together, let man not separate. That's 100% true. Yep. The question is, what has God joined together? That That is the operative question. How can you determine that there is a marriage there that is necessarily indissoluble? Like, if it's a marriage, it is by definition indissoluble. What's marriage? What's marriage? So, you know, for example, if I... <clears throat> just to take an extreme example, let's say I'm uh, I'm already married. My wife is named Jill. Let's say I go find some, you know, lady named Beth. I say, Beth, will you marry me? And she says, sure. And we go line up at the altar, and we say vows, and it's indistinguishable from the vows I said with Jill. And then Beth finds out a month later about Jill. Would you hold that, well, Anders is validly married to two women? Absolutely not. And after both of them were finished murdering me, you might find <laughs> out that the way the church would regard that is I was married to the first and not to the second. Right. Why? Because when I attempted to contract marriage with the second, there was what we call an impediment. An impediment makes it impossible for me to contract another marriage if my spouse, my valid spouse, is still living. There are several impediments that will make it impossible for you to, to legally, validly contract a marriage. Um, here's another one. If uh, if I attempt to uh, if I attempt to contract marriage with a blood relative, a close blood relative, all right, that's incest. Can't do that. that that's invalid. Yeah. Um, if I uh, interestingly one one provision in Catholic canon law, and I've, I'm sure this has been invoked at some point in history. I don't know any cases recently. Uh, King David, he's he's out to lunch if he tries to become Catholic. You cannot murder a man to make his wife eligible and then validly marry her. That's actually an impediment in the law. If you try that, it won't be a valid marriage that you contract. 
right? And there are other impediments as well. Now, uh, if if I do that, I'm not I'm not acting against the Lord's principle that marriage is inviolable. What I'm really doing is I'm shoring up what is the meaning of marriage, right? Mm-hmm. And so what often happens is that there are people who who go go around and say, "I'm married, I'm married," but you look into what they mean by that word, and what you find is they don't mean what the church means. Yeah. Well, they've attempted to contract a union for which there was a, a real impediment that makes it impossible to them to achieve what they're seeking. Uh, we find this in the Bible. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 5 and 7. Um, he says, for example, there's a case of a man <clears throat> who seems to have taken his stepmother home to, with him, and he says he's got to repudiate her. That's an annulment. Like, he's not validly married to this woman. Got to get rid of her. Mm-hmm. There's, no, there's no regularizing that union. It's, he, he's an incest. He's, it's, Paul declares the first annulment in church history that on record in 1 wow. Corinthians 5. Got to get rid of her. You're not validly married to her. That's an annulment. That's what that is. Um, and uh, the, the, what happens today, and this is an impediment that's the most common impediment, is um, you know, marriage involves the total gift of self to another person uh, for the sake of raising a family together. And that's, that's what's intended by marriage. Um, lots of 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, 24, 25 year old brains full of mush <clears throat> who, who have uh, you know Disney movies and Hollywood in mind conceive of marriage as some kind of romantic union you know out of passion mm-hmm. that will bring me ultimate happiness. And uh, they are not, they may say the words, and they may do it uh, in the presence of uh, even a minister of the church, but what they intend by the union is not what the church means by marriage. Yeah. And, uh, and or, or, or they completely lack the psychological capacity, just like if my five-year-old, I no longer have a five-year-old, <laughs> but I've had a lot of them over the years, if my five-year-old, uh, you know, wanted to sign a contract with the Toyota dealer down the street, <laughs> Uh, you know, to to buy a new Camry and take out a loan, right? (laughs) Any salesman that tried to contract that deal with my five-year-old, he'd be out of a job, and no court would enforce that contract. Right, right. The concept that you you, you have to be competent to enter into contract is a reasonable one, and lots of people are not competent to enter into contract. Now, in my situation, I had an impediment to a valid marriage when I got married— well, I thought I got married in 1992— um, uh, the question was that I was Protestant. My wife was actually baptized and confirmed Catholic, but she left the church. So she didn't care a fig about Catholic mm. canon law. I didn't care a fig about Catholic canon law. But canon law says that she had to marry in a Catholic church. We got married in a Protestant church, well, at least with a Protestant minister. actually yeah. got married at a country club, but in front of a Protestant minister, who happened to be my uncle. And, um, oh, my. And, uh, and, and so, you know, years later, years later, uh, you know, I guess 11 years later, I, I go to enter the Catholic Church, and uh, and uh, the priest says, uh, well, tell me about your marriage. And, well, this is a situation with my wife, and come to find out that, well, actually, since she was canonically Catholic, she had an obligation to marry in the Church. Mm-hmm. Um, and you shouldn't. She didn't, and therefore your marriage is invalid. But no problem. We can convalidate it, you know, lickety-split. So about a week later, we go say our vows in front of a Catholic priest. Before I had my marriage convalidated, I went to confession. And I told one of our local pastors here, you know, I'm going to confession, but I'm, my marriage is getting convalidated next week. And he looks at me, and he said, I always thought this was kind of strange counsel. But he looked at me, and he said, 
you know, Anders, if you do this, you can never get an annulment. <laughs> like this time you're going in with your eyes wide open. Yes. You'll never get an annulment. Yeah. And I was, well, I wasn't really planning on it, you know? And yeah. so the idea, like some people think the annulments are just given away like candy. They're not. No. They are, they are refused. And like I, today, I could not divorce my wife and get an annulment. The church would not grant me that annulment because right. I know what I'm doing. Yeah. Yeah. And in my case, I was just an idiot. And, and so, you know, that would be an impediment. I did not have the maturity to, to really know what was a valid marriage. Well, I, I could have pleaded I, uh, idiocy, but I wasn't seeking an <laughs> annulment. I was seeking a valid marriage. Sure. You know? But if I had wanted one, I could have said, idiot, idiot. I certainly I think I've got you beat on idiot points. Uh, possibly so. Uh, Ron, is that helpful for you, sir? Well, it's very interesting. I can say that. What I was uh, um, driving at, and I'll make it real quick. I know there's probably people waiting. This person I know is in my wife's family. She got married in a Catholic church to a Catholic husband, mm-hmm. and um, uh, they had two kids. Young, their kids were really young, and he decided to move on. And so uh, they got a divorce, and she wanted to continue going to church and getting communion, and so she got the marriage um, annulled. And I just... I, I don't, that's the part I don't understand. It was okay, done in the so I don't know what—thank you, I appreciate the elaboration. I don't know what the grounds were that the marriage tribunal found. I mean, they would have found a valid impediment, mm-hmm. but I'm, I would be—I'd take a stab at it and say this is a possibility. Um, what if that guy married her with no intent, with no intent to maintain the indissolubility of the marriage? What if when he said, when he got married to her, his intent was, I'm out of here as soon as I'm unhappy? Mm-hmm. If that was his intent, if he didn't actually intend or promise lifelong fidelity, what if he got married to her and didn't intend to raise a family? doesn't matter that he actually raised one. What if his intent was, look, I'm just shacking up for the time being because it's convenient, and I'll go through this ritual because that seems awful nice and people will give us presents and so forth, but that's not really what I'm in here for. Uh, well, the church would look at his intent and say he didn't intend marriage, and that would explain why he was like misbehaving. Yeah, right. I mean, the 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 disposition with which he entered the relationship may help explain why he went off the rails later on, and that would be a reason to grant her an annulment. Now, it doesn't mean that she did anything wrong necessarily. Maybe it was all his fault, but he didn't have what it takes to commit to marriage, and therefore she's not bound to some jerk that's run off and left her. Yeah, I hope that's helpful for you, Ron. Thank you so much for your call. It's called a communion here on EWTN. We have three lines open right now, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. And if you call right now, we can hopefully get you on today's program. I certainly hope so anyway. Hey, congratulations going out to a longtime member of the EWTN radio family. That would be Wilmington Catholic Radio celebrating their 19th year with EWTN. They serve the greater Wilmington, North Carolina area with three radio stations. How about that? Congratulations to Bill Hamilton and his wonderful team there at Wilmington Catholic Radio from all of us here at EWTN. In a moment, we're going to get back to the phones. We'll talk with Terry in San Antonio. Also, Mike is in Central Florida. If you have a question for Dr. David Anders, this is the time to call 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're listening outside of North America, you'll want to dial the U.S. country code, which is 1, and then 205 271 
2985. And of course, uh, you can always shoot us an email and do that 24-7 at, EW, at uh, ctc at ewtn.com. ctc at ewtn.com. We're at the halfway mark here. Lots more straight ahead on this edition of Call to Communion from EWTN. Stay with us. What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Let's talk about that here on EWTN's Call to Communion with Dr. David Andrews. Two lines are open right now. You can snag one at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Terry is in San Antonio listening on the great Guadalupe Radio. Hey, Terry, what's on your mind today, sir? Uh, Yes, thank you. Uh, Last week uh, here in San Antonio, we were having a parish meeting uh, beginning planning for the forthcoming synod uh, with the archbishop. And um, one of the... I guess the major topic of the Synod will be the real presence. Uh, everybody is concerned that some study came out that showed only 40% of uh, Catholics uh, really believe in the real presence. Mm-hmm. A- anyways, as we were talking about it, uh, someone stirred the pot here by mentioning that uh, Pope John Paul II and, uh, and Pope Francis II both uh, had instances where they gave communion out to, to uh, Protestants. I think it was Bill Clinton by John Paul II and the Prime Minister of England or something by Francis II. So a big argument immediately broke out. Well, how in the world are we supposed to convince parishioners and and work with this uh, real presence when the Pope himself uh, seems to be going against the grain here? So I'm looking, and I I did go online trying to look for an answer to this and couldn't find anything, but I guess to, to save face or salvage our next meeting, I would like some input as to how in the world we can handle this uh, predicament. Yeah, that we sure. I appreciate the question. So first of all, I I have no information about uh, John Paul II personally giving communion to Bill Clinton or Pope Francis ever giving communion to a non-Catholic. I think that's a false story. Uh, commu- uh, Bill Clinton did receive communion, I believe, um, from a priest in South Africa, but not from the Pope. Right, so I don't think any pope in in my memory has ever given communion out to a non-Catholic. But let's say, for the sake of argument, that that had happened. So John the Twelfth was uh, purported in his own day to have ordained his horse. Oh my! Uh, I think the real story is he ordained a deacon in a stable, right? Which was a scandalous thing to do, and he did a lot of other scandalous things too, like multiple fornications and adulteries and practiced simony, which is the sale of church offices, and once ordained a 10-year-old to the episcopacy for money. He, he did all kinds of horrible and nasty things, Pope John XII did. And, uh, and so popes throughout history are not immune from doing, like, god-awful stupid stuff. I mean, starting with the very first pope ever, Pope, uh, pope Peter I, if you will, um, made a scandal in Antioch by refusing to fellowship with Gentile believers out of uh, regard for Jewish purity laws that he was no longer obligated to follow. So the, the moral behavior and imprudent decisions of popes have never been the standard by which we determine uh, sacramental practice, theology, or morality, ever. Not, never, 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 never. So just because a pope does something weird or stupid or, uh, or imprudent or unorthodox, mm-hmm. it doesn't have any bearing on the conduct of a Catholic priest or Catholic lay people. Priests should continue to follow canon law. Yeah. 
uh, the very same law promulgated by popes that sometimes, you know, just hypothetically might not follow it themselves, right? But the, the laws above uh, everybody, including the pope. I mean, the pope can change the law, but uh, but he's still under the law. Sure. Now, so that just is irrelevant. Um, but I also think that story is false. Okay. Well, there you go, Terry. We hope that's helpful for you and for your group as well. Thanks for checking in from San Antonio. Let's go across the country to Central Florida and talk with Mike listening on YouTube. Hey, Mike, what's on your mind today, sir? Hello, Tom and Dr. Anders. It's a pleasure to speak with you. I'm a big fan. Thank you. Um, I had a question. Um, I was listening to Mass today, and uh, Father Joseph was talking about forgiveness and he did a fine job. He always does. But I had a viewpoint that's a little different than some people on, on forgiveness. My viewpoint is that forgiveness is only for the repentant, and that if a person's not repentant, they don't get forgiveness, even from individuals. And here's, here's my theory on it. I was talking with a priest locally here, and he says, Michael, is anybody admitting to you the wrongdoing they've done? I says, no. He says, well, then you don't forgive them. He says, well, what you have to do is remove the, faith, the hate from your heart, because you have to move on with your life with faith, hope, love, and charity. You don't want disappointment or bad things to disappoint you and can affect your prayer life and spiritual life. But Jesus did only give forgiveness to those who were sorry. People who weren't, he said, wailing and grinding of teeth. Everybody he forgave was repentant. And the analogies I, I had that I was looking at is, suppose I go to a priest to confession, and then he says, Michael, he says, are you sorry for the immortal sins? And I said, heck no, I'm happy. I want to do them again tomorrow. Well, he's not going to give me absolution if that's my response. Mm-hmm. I have to be sorry. I have to be sorry for what I did. Suppose I was drinking and driving, and I ran over somebody's kid. And, I, and they came to me, Michael, look at what you did to my child. And I said, I'm sorry for what I did. I didn't mean it. I have a drinking problem. They said, as a Christian, they should forgive me. But what if they asked me, Michael, look at what you did. And I said, yeah, I'm happy I did it. I wish I could do it again tomorrow. You have to be sorry. You don't just automatically, you know, it, it, Christ doesn't forgive someone that is A priest won't give me absolution. I've heard you talk about it about, you don't have to be a doormat. I don't know your take on it, but my, my opinion is forgiveness is people who show that they're sorry. Yeah, I think I can respond it, to that. I think I agree with you in principle. I'd add a few entailments if I might. So Christ, of course, tells us to love our enemies, and love in Catholic theology means two things. It means uh, benevolence, I want the good for this person, mm-hmm. and a desire for union. I'm willing to be in union with them but not any kind of union. I'm not going to go join them in robbing a bank. Union in some good, some genuine good. So benevolence plus the desire for a union in the good. That's what that's what love means. Now, uh, I can love an enemy uh, with whom I'm at enmity. Right? This guy has it out for me, and maybe he's harmed me in some way. So what does what does forgiveness look like in that context? What does love look like in that context? This is what I think it, it means. It means that I would be willing to will the good for this person and be in union with them if their disposition made that possible. Now, if somebody is actively hating me and they're trying to take me down, maybe trying to assassinate me or something, 
you know, we're not going to go play tennis together, <laughs> right? I, I mean, that that I can't. There's there is no good in which we can be in union, right? But when if they make it possible for me to be in union with them in some good, then then loving my enemy requires for me to be open to that. Now, that doesn't require you to be stupid or naive. And so if, if someone is a serial criminal, for example, who has a history of, of manipulation and lying, and they come to me and say, well, I'm really sorry, you know, uh, can I come over? I may have learned through experience that that's not to be trusted, and letting this person in your home is a really imprudent thing to do, and they're going to rob you blind or hurt your kids or something like that. Well, you know, reason comes comes into play, and forgiveness at this level does not require that I affirm something that is stupid, namely, you're trustworthy. Like, I know they're not trustworthy, and so what being in union with them means in this context is not going to be having them in my, in my home. I may find some other way. And if they're totally not trustworthy, I may never be able to be in union with them, but I can still wish the good to, towards them and have the disposition mm-hmm. that if, you know, per impossibile, it were possible uh, to be in union with them, I would. Mike, thanks so much for your call. Let's go to John in Portland, Oregon, listening on the great Modern Day Radio. Hey, John, what's on your mind today, sir? Hey, thanks for taking my call. As a fairly new Catholic and having um, Protestant uh, children over 18, Mm -hmm. um, I have a question about how am I to properly deal with, um, in the case of my, you know, death possibility. I'm having major surgery on Friday, and I just thought, you know what, I'm sure the Catholic Church knows how to deal with this, you know? Yeah, thanks. So I appreciate the question, and I hope your surgery goes well. You'll be in our prayers. What I would recommend you do is specify that you would like uh, a Catholic funeral and a requiem mass, a mass for the repose of your soul, Catholic burial, and you put that in there. And your family obviously can do whatever they want to do, and, you know, they they may want to have other arrangements as well, and they may want to have a reception or something or one of these celebrations of life at a funeral home or mm-hmm. whatever it might be. But uh, but you've made your wishes plain, which is you'd like to have a Catholic funeral, and uh, and that's something you'd like your executors to, to handle, and they can comply with that or not. There you go. John, thanks so much for your call, and uh, we certainly will keep you in prayer and hope that uh, uh, surgery goes well for you. Our hardworking producer, Charles, uh, found out that it was Pope John Paul XII Pope John the Twelfth, who ordained a deacon in a horse in stable. In a horse stable, yes. He did not ordain the horse. No, but there, there was a legend that he had ordained a horse. Yeah, wow, wow. Thank you for that uh, input that, that's there, how Charles. The stories can get away from you like that. Definitely. Here's Mary in Boise listening on the great Salt and Light Radio. Mary, what's on your mind today? Okay, thank you. It's, it's wonderful to hear you uh, weekly. I like listening to you. Um, Dr. Anderson, I have a quick question. I uh, got married through the Catholic Church. Uh, we got the forms from the uh, courtyard, I mean courthouse, and took them to the church. And we had a priest that married us, but right after the ceremony, he left, and I never received any marriage papers, you know, signed by him. So when 16 years later comes up, I get divorced. Um, the priest that we were going to for marriage counseling uh, could not find our marriage license. Uh, and so I know I was married under the eyes of God, but I never had any forms to fill out or, or filled out mm. um, in order to annul the marriage. So are you telling me that the tribunal refused to grant you an annulment? N- no, they 
I I haven't done any um, forms for that because um, I don't know where they would get any paperwork. I see. Well, so so there's a lot that goes into the evidence for an annulment beyond the evidence of the marriage, right? Because you, you have to look at what, what possible impediments there might be. I'm not a canon lawyer, so I can't advise you on the legal aspect of the thing. If your desire is to get an annulment, you'd like to validly remarry, then I would just present the case uh, to the tribunal, go through your parish priest, say, I want to marry again, this is the situation, let's turn it over to the tribunal and let them do their work. Yeah, that's the best. Mary, thank you so much for your call. Glad that you're listening to us in Boise on the great Salt and Light Radio. It's called a communion here on EWTN. Tomorrow night, be sure to join us for EWTN Live with Father Mitch Pacwa. That's uh, tomorrow night, 8 p.m. Eastern on EWTN Radio and Television. This week, Aidan Gallagher and Campbell Miller will be around to discuss how English and Irish Catholics maintained their faith in the midst of murderous persecution during the late 17th and early 18th centuries and the lessons for us today. Again, that's tomorrow night, 8 p.m. Eastern, for EWTN Live on EWTN Radio and Television. All right. Sounds fascinating. Let's go to uh, Patricia right now in Covington, Louisiana, listening on the EWTN app. Hey, Patricia, what's on your mind today? Good afternoon. Um, I'm calling about the gentleman who was questioning annulments, and I don't think he really ever understood what Mr. Anders was trying to tell him. And I don't think that he should look at people who are divorced and got annulments, maybe going up to communion and saying they're sinning. He doesn't know what that person's conscience is, what their relationship is with God, but mostly he doesn't know what their status was when they agreed to get married. That's when an annulment is all about, is what, like like Dr. Andrews was saying, what impediment may you have had? And, um, and, and as far as the relative, I think she was doing the right thing. I don't think she got an annulment so she could remain in the Catholic Church. So she could remain in the Catholic Church as a divorced woman as long as she lived a chaste, life. So I think there's a lot of misconceptions with many, many people about what an annulment is, and I just don't think, I think going through a divorce is hard enough without having other people looking at you and judging you. Yeah, I really appreciate the question, and so that's one of the reasons that we do what we do on the show, is to try to clarify what the Church's position on annulments is. I don't presume ill will, uh, at all of our earlier caller, he I, the way I heard him, I didn't hear him necessarily passing judgment on people as much as just saying, I don't understand what an annulment is. I don't understand mm-hmm. how this is consistent with Christ's command that marriage is indissoluble. And, and for many people, uh, explaining that takes some nuance and some time. And that's what we try to do on the show. And and you're absolutely right. We we shouldn't pass judgment on what we cannot know. Yeah. There's some things that are known, say, only to your confessor from the internal forum. And I, I don't know what a person's disposition is when they're going up for communion, and I, it's not my place to judge. Now, the Church can judge ob- objective, outward behavior and criteria, and has an obligation to do that. Um, interestingly, St. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 5, don't judge those outside the Church. But do judge those inside the church when it comes to like, questions of public scandal, yeah. right? But that's not a, so much a matter of trying to read someone's heart as it, is, as, it, as it is a matter of saying, 
you know, here's a public behavior that you're not supposed to engage in. You can't do that and go to communion. Patricia, thanks so much uh, for your call. Call to communion here on EWTN. Uh, Charles says, I've been enjoying this show on the radio for quite a while. Thanks for all you do. Keep up the good work. Well, Charles, we enjoy you enjoying it. Thank you. Please keep listening. Appreciate that. Here's an email from Eden who says, I recently saw the movie The Sound of Freedom. And in the movie, a significant amount of deception was necessary to rescue the children represented in the film. Subtle, careful speech that avoids directly lying wouldn't have been enough. Competent lying was the only recourse. I mean, flat-out lying, if you will. Now, if I become Catholic and lied to someone, I couldn't go to confession and honestly resolve to never do it again, since if someone was in danger, my conscience wouldn't permit me to act any differently. Is this a barrier to my conversion or not? Thanks, Eden. I would say no. I said it's not a barrier to becoming Catholic. Uh, what, what, what you need to do, in my judgment, is a pretty if you're in a position like say for example you're working for the government and and you're in espionage or police work and you have to go undercover is uh is do some serious study of the catholic moral theology on lying and the kind of the kind of situations where we can prevaricate and the kind we can't i mean clearly when i get on stage uh well everybody runs when i get on stage (laughs) but if if an actor gets on stage and he says you know i am uh you know i am i am king john or or whatever we don't they don't take them seriously. I mean, there are situations in which stating a falsehood under a particular context is not actually the intent to deceive. There, I mean, other nuances as well. And so that's a question. You you get into that. You study your moral theology. Uh, but no, this is not a barrier to your becoming Catholic. Thanks so much uh, for your question. And uh, you know, my endorsement means absolutely nothing. But I must say, I got to see the Sound of Freedom with my wife last week. It's just a phenomenal movie. It's, it's a hard watch. It's a hard watch because of what's being portrayed, and, you know, they can't come out and show what's being portrayed. You all understand what I'm talking about here, but uh, I certainly uh, recommend it. It is a great movie. Uh, Michelle in Wichita, Kansas, says, Hello to all you wonderful people sharing the truth of the church. My question to you, Dr. Andrews, is, do Protestants believe the relationship of Jesus to his church is like a bride and groom relationship? If so, how do they reconcile Jesus allowing the church to fail to the point that the Protestants were needed? Wouldn't that be the same thing as Jesus divorcing his bride? Thanks so much for all you do, Michelle in Wichita. Yes, thank you. Appreciate the question. So all Protestants that I am familiar with believe that Christ is related to the church as a husband to his bride. To your question, how can they reconcile that with Christ allowing his bride to fail? Uh, they, di- they give different answers. Of course, Protestants always give different answers from one another, depending on their ecclesiology and their eschatology. Mm. So the way, say, John Calvin answered this question was he would maintain that, uh, that Christ's church actually did survive intact, but it was kind of buried under—this is the metaphor he used—buried under smoke, that the pope and the bishops had fomented all of this, all this superstition and added all this ritual and this tradition— so that the the real church was there, kind of like the smoldering embers of a fire obscured by all the smoke on top of it. And so the way he conceived of the Reformation was blowing away the smoke to bring to light the, the real church that was always there underneath. Now that, that view, that's one Reformation view, presumes that there is a direct line of historic continuity between the apostolic era and Calvin's day in the 16th century. There are Protestants 
that take a different point of view, and they they believe uh, that there's a kind of eschatological apocalyptic element where um, maybe there was continuity for a while, but now you have the rise of the Antichrist, and they would see the Pope as the Antichrist, and this is sort of the final battle between God and Satan. That was another way of construing it. Uh, there is a primitivist view among some Protestants that the Church really did fail after the first century, uh, but they don't think it failed absolutely because their guy, whoever their guy was, shows up in the 16th or the 17th or the 18th or the 19th century to restore it. So Alexander mm-hmm. Campbell, founder of the Christian Church, took that view. He he said, I'm going to read the Bible as if no one has ever read it before me, which strikes me as just a ridiculously foolish thing to do. But that's what he did, and he claimed he was sort of refounding, reconstituting the apostolic church. Of course, Joseph Smith did this with the Mormons, Ellen White mm-hmm. with the Seventh-day yeah. Adventists, you know. And so they would they would see themselves as being the perpetuators and the fulfillers of this promise of the church not failing. Uh, but you know, like I said, different eschatology, different ecclesiology, different Protestant answers to the to the paradox of the Reformation, which is, you know, if God really superintends the church, then why do we need you guys? And uh, you know, when I was studying these questions years ago, it struck me the sort of key Protestant thesis is that. Um, my version of Protestantism, whatever version that happens to be, mm-hmm. just emerges out of the pages of the Bible. You know, if I'm a Lutheran, I think a straightforward reading of the Bible will give you Lutheranism. If I'm a Calvinist, I think the straightforward reading of the Bible will give you Calvinism. If I'm a Methodist, it'll give you Methodism, and so forth. Um, but uh, but they all share a family resemblance. Mm-hmm. And if that were true, if that were really true, then you would expect something like some version of Protestantism to have emerged every place in the world that wasn't in union with the Pope. I mean, if the problem is the Pope, if the Pope is the guy in here obscuring the gospel and burying it under superstition, then then you would have thought, say, for example, uh, the Monophysites in Alexandria, right? They weren't in union with the Pope. They would have had Lutheranism. Or the Assyrian Church of the East would have had Lutheranism or Calvinism or the, the Indians or the Nestorians. Or who, all these groups that weren't Catholic in antiquity would have looked something like these Protestant sects, if that's just what the Bible taught. And they look nothing like them. They look nope. nothing like them at all, yeah. right? Yeah. Which puts the lie to the theory, in my judgment, that namely the, the, the real origin of the Reformation is not found in what Scripture says, but what, what late medieval um, uh, scholastic philosophy and, and, uh, and social history in Saxony and France and England uh, produced. It's a it's a particular historical moment with very specific historical causes that lead to a very idiosyncratic form of Christianity in one place, in one time, that had never been seen anywhere in the world before. Michelle, thanks so much uh, for your email. We'll close with this one from Donald, uh, a bit complex here. He says, in the book of Revelation, it states that in heaven there are seven golden lampstands representing the seven churches of God. One of these lampstands is the church of Thyatira. I think I got that right. I believe that Thyatira is the Roman Catholic church. Revelation says God is pleased with the church of Thyatira because of its faith and many sacrifices, but he is displeased with it because, quote, it tolerates that woman. So is that woman referred to in the book of Revelation Jezebel? And if so, why does the church of Thyatira tolerate her? Also, what are the other six churches represented by the other six lampstands? Thanks, Donald. Yeah, I think the church of Thyatira was Tyra. the church of Thyatira. Okay. I think that, I think it was an historical Christian church in the first century that uh, John of Patmos had issues with. 
I think when John of Patmos wrote the book of Revelation, and he names these specific communities, uh-huh. he meant exactly what he said. He was oh. talking to those specific communities, and, and some of his complaints are respecting movements and ideas and ideologies that are obscure to us today. Mm. They were local concerns that I really see. are not universal concerns of the church today. And in my judgment, most of the book of Revelation refers to events that were contemporaneous with John of Patmos, and we should not look to the Revelation and imagine a kind of one-to-one correspondence between figures and types in this biblical book ah. and, and characters or movements or personalities today. I think we can find similarities you know, we can find types of spiritual corruption, types of, of manipulation and abuse and so forth mm-hmm. that perdure throughout every age. But you shouldn't look for, you know, I, I'm not one of these, pick up the newspaper and, and read it in light of the book of Revelation types. Okay, very good. And then there's this one from Carol. How is it that if every particle of the sacred host is Jesus and that particles are surely lost every time people receive in the hand, how is it that the church allows this? Priests purify their fingers of the tiniest particles of the host at each Mass. Thanks, Carol. Okay, thanks. So let, let me push the particle thing a little bit farther. Uh, we, we use the language of particle, but we also say about the sacred host that the real presence of Christ perdures as long as the appearance of bread and wine perdure. Right. So at some level of granularity, the Eucharist no longer looks like bread or wine. Yeah. I mean, I, I look, I'm just, this is just my thinking. I'm yes. trying to come up, I'm speculating here about an answer. Mm. Certainly that happens in the digestive tract. Oh, yeah. I mean, it stops looking like bread and wine fairly quickly in the digestive system, and it stops ha- being the real presence of Christ. So at some level of granularity, it seems reasonable to me to conclude that there's, we're not talking about the presence of Christ anymore. Makes all the sense in the world. Carol, thank you so much uh, for your email. Hey, Dr. David Anders, thank you. Thanks, Tom. Appreciate that, and we appreciate all of you for listening to Call to Communion. We bring it to you Monday through Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern with an encore at 11 p.m. Eastern. You can also check out the podcast anytime you wish. Charles, our producer, will have that posted for you in about an hour. takes a little while for the Internet to go, oh, yeah, here comes another one, (laughs) at uh, EWTNradio.net, EWTNradio.net. On behalf of our fantastic team here, I'm Tom Price along with Dr. David Anders. Looking forward to our next visit. Hopefully that'll be tomorrow on the Wednesday edition of Call to Communion right here on EWTN. Until then, have a wonderful day. God bless.